morning, good afternoon, good day. Welcome to the Gig Stories podcast with me, Alex, and him. And oh, him, me. Apparently he's not even with us. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, and him, Chris. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my humblest apologies. I'm sorry. Um, you know what, though? I threw you in there, but also... Um, I do like to talk, don't I? So in fairness to you, you were just sat there doing your thing, thinking Winters is talking again. Yeah, I tend to switch off. When you start, I just <laughs> kind of go, uh, it's just like, it's like white noise. <laughs> you know what and, I mean? And if you listen carefully, listeners, you can tell exactly when Chris is switching off. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a little, there's a little click. Oh, wait. <laughs> And I'll ask a question. <laughs> yeah, and what's next? How are you doing? Oh, yeah, I'm very well. I'm very well. Yeah, sun's shining. And the, the loft is a little bit warm because obviously I need to close the windows and the skylight and can't put the fan on. But yeah, it's warm. It's it's uncommonly warm for September, I would say. We're talking about the weather, Alex. I know. I mean, this is, this is what they come for. This is it's, what they come for. It's really not. Two white middle-aged men talking about the weather in Manchester. Um, what else can we talk about then? We went to a gig. Let's be even more Manchester. Yes. Yeah. Can we be even more Manchester? Yes, we can. We went to a gig. Tell him, Chris. We went to see New Order in Eaton Park, and it was fantastic, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I personally, as well, I'm really lucky because I've been going to a few gigs. I know you've been to a, a few now, but that... God, that was something to behold, wasn't it? And mm. if you didn't see our social media posts, what really blows my mind is that that was New Order's biggest ever Manchester gig. Yeah, it feels like they should have done, you know, because so they've never played a, a football stadium then. No, not, well, not Manchester. Not Manchester, yeah. So uh... that's it. I mean, that's sort of scandalous, is it, is it not? Joy Division, New Order, they, they're one of the biggest, I'm going to say British because everyone around the world knows them, but they're one of the biggest British bands ever. And they're only just playing Heaton Park now to 38,000. Mm. Yeah, it was good though, wasn't it? It was The weather was good and mm. the vibe, the crowd was... Uh, yeah, totally up for it. And they were just re on really good form. And one thing I was thinking was just Steve Morris. I, I don't know what he's on, but Unbel just uh, to keep well, up that level of drumming for that amount of time. Oh, And, and he's, he's in his like, late 20s now, isn't he, or something? <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was the, the energy... Um, and do you know what? The, I was trying to explain this. The goodwill... And I don't know if that came across um, sincerely enough. I haven't felt goodwill like that from a crowd towards a band before. It, it, maybe ever, maybe ever. It was like, as soon as they came on, everyone there, and I believe it was 38,000, everyone was just like, yes, this is happening at last. And we just want you to enjoy it and nail it everyone was behind them and of course they they come on and open up with regret yeah and, uh, and everyone including me i don't know what you were doing 
Well, you know exactly what I was doing. Well, yeah, taking photos. I can't believe you could take photos. That's why I couldn't be a photographer. I'd have forgotten that whole first song. I wouldn't have taken any shots. I'd have been <laughs> Bernard Sumner's feet yelling out, you know, I would like a place. It was just, it was it was brilliant from the off, and it was great all night, wasn't it? Mm, absolutely. And um, can, I, can I ask you then, how do you cope as a music fan? You love New Order. A band comes on and starts with a song like Regret, which is one of the just the greatest songs ever in. How do you focus on your photography? Because you only have two or three songs. Yeah. But how did you how did you not just lose it and just not stand there screaming and whelping and swinging your shirt around your head? Um, I mean, you just kind of switch off and you just go into work mode, really. I mean, it is tough. And I, I, there have been some gigs that I've photographed. And it's been very difficult to to concentrate. I think ones that spring to mind are um, I shot James at Latitude. I can't remember what they opened with, but I'm such a massive James fan. Um, so that was that was quite tough to concentrate. Uh, I think Liam Gallagher as well. Him coming on, and I, I think he might have started with Rock and Roll Star. Oh wow! And um, and and that and it was in a relatively small venue it was in the ritz it was the one which was oh. uh but a, a week after the the manchester bomb yes of um so yeah it was yeah at points like that if you, if i'm a, if i'm heavily invested in the band or the artist then you just have to put it put it to one side and concentrate what was the but there's quite a few questions i'd like to ask all related to that what's like being the most bizarre start oh. Yeah, what's been the most bizarre start to a gig or strange that, you, that, that you've seen or, I don't know, the artist was held? I don't know, something, what, what's, what's a memorable one? Um, I was at the Academy and I was photographing De La Soul. Oh, yes. And um, they, were, they were late. They, were, they must have been about 40 minutes late. Right, okay. And then when they actually came on stage, I can't remember what they started with, but they, there were only two of us in the pit, and, right. which was surprising anyway, because yeah. it's, you know, De La Soul. Exactly. Uh, but they spoke directly to us and said, put your cameras down. You need to dance. Everyone else is dancing. So for, for a lot of the first tune, we had to put our cameras down yes. and actually dance in the pit to De La Soul because they... Uh, well, they didn't request it. They demanded it. Three, that's so. the magic number. It definitely that wasn't is... that one. But um, but yeah. That's so, that was, so cool. Yeah, they were really sweet. And, uh, you know, talk about how to get the crowd back on side when the crowd was getting a bit restless. And, you know, they'd been, uh, you know, it was it was 40 minutes later than than advertised. But, yeah, they, 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 got, um, they got the crowd back on side and embarrassed us, which was lovely. Have you have you ever had someone really play up to you? Um, who who likes the camera? <laughs> well, you, you're asking that question. Um, I wouldn't say playing up, but sometimes you get people who are a real gift. And I would say Jake Schellingford from uh, My Life Story um, right. is he's just such a good front man. And yeah. you know that if you're going to photograph him, you're going to get some decent shots because he's always kicking and jumping and um, standing on the monitors. And um, yeah, he's he's always good value. Definitely. Well, your your pics of um, 
Oh, I've forgotten his name. I'm so sorry. I'm sure he's probably not listening, though. Uh, your man uh, at the Pigeon Detectives, when you and I went to see Shed 7 at Peace Hall. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was, he was amazing. He, he was, was, he was great. To, yeah, he was great to photograph. And um, yeah, so what I'm going to do is I'll, I'll, I'll pop up a gallery on our website of gigs that we've been to. Um, I'm not going to put every single gig that I photograph, but I'll put ones that we talk about. Yeah, um, definitely. So we've, we've, we've already talked, well, we did our first OB um, Absolutely. from Shed 7 Peace Hall and um, yeah, New Order. Um, so I'll get, those, I'll get those two galleries up and um, yeah. And you can give the people like, what they want. Yeah, or, or give them what they don't even know that they want. <laughs> yet <laughs> <laughs> who who is left because this is like the um the chris Payne episode <laughs> who haven't you shot that you re- and you're only allowed to choose one that you really want to well i'm not i'm gonna refuse to just name one because well i'm um, not gonna let you refuse <laughs> well upcoming gigs <laughs> are yeah. um all of them seem to be bands that i've seen live but okay. not um, photographed before. So Shed 7, I'd never photographed before. I'd seen live yep. before. New Order, that was my first New Order gig. I um, know, which is great. Made it better. Yeah, I can't believe that. But then um, next week, or this week now, um, as you listen to this, uh, Ash. Yeah, um, of course. I've seen them before, but I've never photographed them. I'm going to be photographing Boo Radleys, who I've seen before, but never photographed. And... There's another now, one as well. Suede. So, sorry, Suede was Swade, the other one. Swade. So all okay. f- five in a row that I've never photographed before. Amazing. Now Ooh. that's a that is genuine, and I'm so chuffed that you're back. Uh, and and I was at, Sh- at Shed Seven and New Order. I was just so pleased watching you toddle off. Do your th- first three. It's great that you, you're back to it. Now back to my question: Who do you want? Come on. There's got to be someone like, you know, whether it's Morrissey or Nick Cave. Am I, can I even still say Morrissey's name? I mean, you know. Well, yeah. I mean, he's a bit of an idiot, but I still like, <laughs> but I like, I like his music up until um, Vauxhall and I, and then kind of, I'm not that fast after. Well, it's Rick Astley now, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, <laughs> oh, Johnny's so, not too chuffed about that. Is yeah, he? Well, no, he's, he, he's all right. If you read properly what he says, he's, yeah. he's all right with that. Yeah. Um, no, come on, just tell me one artist you just would be like, yes, yes, I will be there now. You would, you know. Um, I would... Do you know what? I'd, I'd quite like to shoot Foo Fighters. I think Dave Grohl oh. would... Um, I, you know, I think he's going to give you something and he's going to give you something. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I do. Yeah. I've, I've not really photographed much kind of that end of the rock scale, if you see what I mean. Well, next um, I th- they're in town next year, aren't they? Is it old Trafford they're playing or? Yeah. Um, and I've not, I've not I done a stadium gig either. I've, I've never photographed a stadium gig. So um, oh, right. that, that would be, be cool. another kind of um, tick, you know, box ticked. I've done festivals. I've done obviously loads of venues, but I've I've never done a, a a football stadium. So yeah, I could kill two birds with one stone there. Amazing. Yeah. Now we're speaking about wish lists there almost, and this this podcast continues to surprise me. And what Chris and I are really uh, proud of, and we mean that in a genuine way, is the eclecticism. 
that we have in our range of guests. Um, and today, I, I couldn't believe it when Chris said, we're going to be interviewing Eddie Reader. I could not believe it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what a wonderful time we had with her. Um, everyone, uh, I think, will just remember Fairground Attraction and Perfect straight away, that song. And rightly so, because actually it's a it's a wonderful song. Um, but her voice is just so amazing. And um, this interview really opened up her music to me. Uh, and I've been listening to a, a lot of her. You know, the folk stuff, the jazz stuff, the, the Robert Burns album is just, it, it is incredible. And um, what a great, what a great chat. It, it was exciting, wasn't it? I, I think I could say that, Chris. Was, no, absolutely. We were both excited about that. And yet again, we've, we've had a guest on where we go. We, we've not scratched the surface there. So um, I think we'll get Eddie back on because we've not talked about touring with, with Fairground Attraction very much. Um, so, yeah, we can, um, we can uh, you know, fill in the don't, gaps next time. Don't think I haven't noticed what you're doing as well, Payne, because mm. as... Um, as we do these interviews, almost at the end of every interview, you say, ah, we've hardly scratched the surface, so we're going to have to have you back. I know what you're doing. You're immediately doubling our episodes. So, you know, when we're a year old, are we just going to go back through and interview all the same people again? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Alex, this ain't my first rodeo. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely looks like your first cowboy hat. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You want to try again? <laughs> you want to see these chaps, mate? <laughs> I can't. All I can see is your backside. Yeah, um, <laughs> lovely. There's an image, and 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 it isn't. But that's what I like about these interviews as well. Is that even if we don't go back and revisit some of our guests, what I like is that when you're chatting with someone, Chris and I have our sort of list of questions that we might like to ask. And then it just goes all over in different places and you really enjoy it. And then afterwards you're thinking, oh, I didn't ask that, didn't get a chance to ask that. And it's not about, you know, a good interview. And I'm not saying our interviews are are, are great, but good interviewer doesn't try and just force the questions they want to ask. You know, they go with it. And that's that very much happened with Eddie today. And it was uh, it's just lovely hearing her hearing her speak and Morrissey gets a mention again he's already had one mention in this uh, podcast and mm-hmm. I love <laughs> I love her little story about Morrissey and she talks about uh, cover songs and how she started and how uh, she first got to the states I won't spoil with who if you don't know her history but there's loads in there busking um, was just busking as well yeah she was a she was a busker. I love that. She's that's how she started out. Have mm. you, did you spend time busking, Chris? I did it a couple of times, um, and I found it quite demoralising. Um, oh, okay. I remember one time. There's a place in the borders, north of the borders, called Traquair, and okay. there's a there's a, a a big country house there. And every year they used to have a a country fair there and you'd have lots of craft and there would be dancing and live performance. And me and a friend of mine, Adam, we were, we, um, he, he brought his keyboard and I brought my saxophone 
and we played and <laughs> made nothing. I think we must have been about 13, 14, something like that. But then um, we were playing by this kind of statue. It was like a temporary statue and it had been secured by these wires to the ground. And I didn't see the wires and I tripped over the wire and fell on my sacks. And, you know, the crook of the, the sacks oh. went onto my onto my chest and I bent it in half. I've still got oh. it. What, your and chest? It, or the... <laughs> yeah, exactly. It felt like I bent my chest. And have you oh never bent your chest? Gosh. Um, yeah. So um, we made nothing and I broke my saxophone. Um, so I think that might be the last time I ever busked. No, um, I just want to, I just want, I just want to get you onto Market Street in the middle of Manchester and just have you play in Baker Street. And I'll do an interpretive start, dance. Don't I'll do an interpretive start. dance for you. It'd be brilliant. Well, I have to say that that self-same um, uh, fair, the Traquair fair that I played at, that was the first time I ever saw and heard um, Tom Bancroft play, a jazz drummer that I included in my jazz um, portrait, my drumming portrait uh, oh, right. exhibition. Okay. Um, and he was in a band called Stepping Stains. And yeah, I, they were they were phenomenal. It's the first time I'd heard jazz and folk smashed together um love that yeah, and that's what i that's what i like about eddie's that actually she's crossed quite a few genres yeah absolutely in, in her career well she's surrounded by folk musicians and but just this the nature of her voice it has that real jazz influence as well and um and i love some of her references her references which which and i, I Sometimes I'm paranoid that people just think I'm going, oh, yeah, when someone names an artist. Um, but some of those old 40s and 50s singers, you know, the the very tight harmony trios and that, it just reminds me of my dad and what my mum and dad listened to and listened to. Um, but she's just fantastic. And before we hand you over to Eddie Reader, I can't believe that you just dropped the bomb that you'd met her before. And you'd never told me. And I won't say any more because it's a it's a lovely little anecdote. But I was my mouth was like, Are you kidding me? <laughs> well, shall we get to the episode? Let's do it. Here is Eddie Reader. Indeed, welcome to the Gig Stories podcast. We are now the podcast that doesn't just chat about live gigs, but we're actually now experiencing live gigs. And uh, today we're very excited um, because we're joined by someone who is about to head out on tour themselves. Singer, songwriter, actor, presenter. Yeah, I do a bit of that. <laughs> author and... and most excellent order of the British Empire owner. And four honorary degrees just sitting on my couch. <laughs> PhDs? Uh, Strathclyde, Edinburgh, Stirling and Caledonia University. Well, made me an honorary degree. It's Her Highness, Eddie Reader. <laughs> yeah, get it right. Hi, I'm five foot ten and a half. I've always been higher than everybody. <laughs> Ah, I could only wish to be five foot ten, Eddie. 
I used to love it when some in the seventies, some of the men in the folk clubs would all go, "Hey, little lady," <laughs> looking up at me. <laughs> yeah, looking up at you exactly. What what a pleasure and what a, what a treat. I'm going to be honest. I've had a few butterflies in my stomach this morning, and so when you popped up on the screen, I was like, "Oh, it's actually happening. This is real." So thank you for taking out time. Thank you for taking out time. We're just going to jump straight in because you shared something, as we just said hello, that I want you to to mention on here. You've literally just received something. Is it via email or was it on your, on your phone? It was actually a messenger on Facebook and one of my friends, Ian Wilson, has, he's a mad collector of everything, rock and roll. Love that. And he has my first itinerary, which is the, we all, in the, in the, and the people that go on tour know that we all get itineraries at the beginning of a tour and it tells you where you're going, where you're staying, how long it takes to get in between each places, what you're doing each day. <laughs> the days off are travel days. Don't go far away. You're going to be picked up then. And so yeah. we also call them the book of lies. This is sometimes because they always get changed <laughs> on the road and you, and you think you're in one city when you're in somewhere else. So I've got these two sheets of paper and it's from 1982 and it was my first ever job professional with the gang of four going on tour of america landing at the us festival in in la which was 60,000 people i i was working in a factory the week before and here i was i passed the audition and i got the job so i was on tour and i've sent it to you so you could see it there there's there's a bit of a joke there's usually jokes in the itinerary book of lies there's usually like so it's sort of it's it's written out like you know um john king is playing brian ferry andy gill is being pete townsend uh, you know all that and i'm doing i'm eddie reader as the queen of scots they're <laughs> 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 managed by lenny Pico and then it's warner brothers so it's warner brothers and they're presenting us to and the, if you look at the dates they're from the first of september right through to the end of october there's only about two three days off and all of it and, and what we, year and what year was this this is 1982 september 1982 and um i'm glad I, i've ian wilson has sent it to me and i'm like god it's thrilled me no end to just sort of pinpoint that time because for me it's just vague memories yeah um and um, as I get older, getting vaguer, but definitely <laughs> what's important is that on that tour, for my first experience of what would be called making it, yeah. <laughs> is like yeah. being successful, getting a wage and being on tour. And what I was doing was banging a Simmons kit drum and I was singing, I love a man in a uniform. And I loved that band. I just adored the Gang of Four. I loved their politics. I loved everything about them. And I was so proud to be in their band. And for that brief moment, I was in their band. And me and Sarah Lee were the two women in the band. And all the audience used to shout, Goff with girls, Goff with girls. That's Gang of Four with girls, for those who don't understand my accent. How did that happen? How did you end up being in Gang of Four? Ah, well, it's just a drive on my part and wanting to get out of the factory in Irvine, the knitwear factory. I'd been busking all over Europe and 
did okay, you know, made made my money just doing that every day, my 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 supper and my accommodation or whatever it was. If I was camping, yeah. I just you know we and I met people and musicians and I was with good friends. I was in good company, and I did the vendage down the south of France. By the time I got home in that November, it must have been nineteen eighty one. I was absolutely ready for a bath and a bit of, you know, I need to do something serious with what I, I do, you know, whatever it is I do, I need to do something with it because I was kind of thrilling myself with it. But at the same time, that was, there was a limit to it. There was a ceiling to busking. You know, you, you busk in the street, people throw money at you. People come up and offer you accommodation and food and let me take you home. You're a poor wee soul. You need help. You know, you get all that. And you get exercise in your throat, you get to project so that I can now sing from one end of the street to the other. I don't need a microphone. That kind of stuff was really good training and also learning lots of brilliant busking songs like Brown Eyed Girl or Tupelo Honey. And Tupelo Honey, Van Morrison actually made me probably about 200 quid in Leon in France. <laughs> you know, I'm never paying him anything for it, but that's, that's the actual value of you know, learning a good busking song. And so all that I had, I had that, that sort of those chops and I was very quick. I could do harmonies with people. I'd learned guitar very well. Um, and then I, my friend in London had phoned me in Irvine. I, I used the phone box outside the knitwear factory, Mary Queen of Scots, the knitwear factory. And um, um, we made uh, golfers jackets, you know, cardigans <laughs> with the diamonds on them. Uh, I was rubbish at it. But anyway, uh, <laughs> he, he said to me, listen, Eddie, if you want to go anywhere, you have to start answering adverts like at the back of, of I mean, I'd answered adverts in Glasgow in the Evening Times, but that was just for charity singers or whatever musicians wanted. But he said, it's really vital you don't, answer the adverts that are not in a box because they're just people like us with no money you have to answer the adverts in a box because that will be a record company and they will oh, have hi. money and they will be able to pay you a wage and so I took his advice and there was two in the NME that week that Thursday I remember and I went in the phone box with all my 10 pences one was for Shack Attack and the other was for the Gang of Four unbeknownst to me it was the Gang of Four so I answered both and um, I talked to them on the phone and the Gang of Four bunch, their manager or whoever he was, I can't remember his name now, but he, he their representative had said, um, what have you done before? What have you done before? And me and my kind of, <laughs> hey, Chutzpa, I was like, oh yeah, I've sung Van Morrison, I've sung Simple Minds, I've been all over the planet. Busking. I didn't add the word busking, and I didn't add the word doing covers while busking. You know, I didn't. I just sort of painted this picture, and so they got me down for an audition, and the audition was the day before their their um, appearance on the Old Grey Whistle Test. So there was two girls. It was me and this other one, and uh, she was wearing shades, and I was to play the Simmons kit, and I went into my mum's house and I got all her pans and pots and I, I managed to get a loan of all the Gang of Fords records and I just learned everything by rote. I learned every harmony 
So by the time I got to the audition and Andy Gill didn't know where the chorus came, I knew where the chorus was. I knew how that went and I knew where that came in and, and I, I, I had it. And, um, and uh, when we did, the, they, they used both of us, the both of the singers for the old grey whistle test, which is famously on, on YouTube now. You can see it. The Gang of Four doing I Love a Man in a Uniform and Call Me Up, I think they're doing. And I... We live as we dream alone, which is a beautiful song. And um, I, I got the gig, and they offered it to me. And said we're doing the US Festival next week. Actually, it was a British tour first, and I think there was six people and a dog going. There wasn't many right. ticket sales. <laughs> but um, when we got to America, punk hadn't quite faded, so it was still at its height at that in 1982. And um, it was 60,000 people and there was Lords of the New Church, the police, I think the police's manager, Copeland, wanted, was interested in the Gang of Four. And very, they were on EMI at that point in Britain, but Warner's over there, I don't know, there's some sort of deal going on. I didn't know much about anything. I had never been on a plane before. And I think when I was on the plane was when I admitted to them that I'd never been anywhere. And I was just a... You know, I wasn't just, uh, but I was a busker that was very good at my gig. But um, amazing, I sort of admitted to them, and they, they loved that. That was great about it. You know, John King and Andy Gill were just over the moon. For, uh, plus, I could drink them under the table, which which they really enjoyed. Because <laughs> surely that's that's right up their street, isn't it? That someone would do that. I mean, that's yeah. as that's as punk rock as you can get, isn't it? I was more punk than any punk I know, <laughs> even though I was a folky. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you were mentioning the um, you were mentioning the support um, acts that you had on that tour, which were pretty well. They weren't bad, were pretty they? Pretty great, momentous. Actually, what was interesting was somebody on Twitter. I'd, I'd posted the the two pages of my first tour itinerary with the Gang of Four, and it nice. had Atlanta, Georgia, in it. And somebody said, "Oh, I see you're playing two nights in Atlanta. I wonder if Mr. Michael Stipe came." You know, and I said, <laughs> he not only came, he supported us. The REM <laughs> were supporting the Gang of Four in that tour. They all slept in a bus outside the hotel that we were all in because they couldn't afford a room. And <laughs> it's like, really, and I fancied um, Mike Mills and uh, oh. Mike Mills fancied me and uh, Sarah Lee fancied Jefferson, their manager, tour manager, and Jefferson fancied Sarah Lee. But nothing ever happened. We just all... Totally, we were all kids. Like we were like college students. On a, Eddie, on a, tell us no, the sorry, truth. <laughs> I tell you what, Mike. Mike was really uh, sweet because when they were big and famous, and I met them in London, and I went backstage. They were just. I think Orange Juice had just got up the charts, and Michael was saying to me, I, "It's all right for you. You had perfect. You know, it sort of gets you in the door and all that." And I'm like, oh, "But you are great. What's the problem? You don't need a hit." You know, he's a brilliant. And he's like, no, you don't understand. And they're selling out the Hammersmith Pally or whatever it was, Odeon. Yeah. And um, and I and I went backstage and Morrissey was hanging around backstage and he's going, What are you doing here? And I was like, Well, to you. I'm I'm mates with, with these guys because they were on tour with me. What do you mean they were on tour with you? Says Morrissey all in a bit of a a bit of a huff about it, you know. And of course. I said, Well, uh, he they supported the gang of four. What you were in the Gang of Four? Yeah, I was in the Gang of Four. <laughs> so, gang, being in the Gang of Four has been so it's so much kudos for me that uh, I love throwing it into the conversation sometimes because people think, 
oh, you're that, the bunch of social workers that had a number one hit with Perfect in the middle of the Thatcher era. Yeah, yeah, we're not interested. And you throw in the gang of four and they're like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah. That's really good. <laughs> oh, that must have been really sweet having, um, having Morrissey stuck for something to say. Well, he was sweet, actually, after he found out. Then he asked for my hand and said, could you walk me to the, to the sound desk? I'm, I'm frightened to be alone. And then he wrote to me a few times and I, I, I'd never answered. You know, he wouldn't leave a, a number that I could return the call and all that. And I went, oh, bugger off. If you might be my pal, I'm here. But if you're, <laughs> you're going to play silly buggers, you know, you're yeah. talking to the ring. Shop, you know, sh- shipyard daughters perspective women i'm just not i'm not up for playing those games with anybody you know be yeah. pretentious if you like but don't date with me <laughs> <laughs> i love it do you know what i nearly in your introduction i nearly put political activist <laughs> i don't think i am really i just think mostly when i was growing up people talked politics they did yeah. i'm a trade union girl we went to christmas parties and the trade unionists supplied all the gifts and all the parties and all the summer trips to the beach. I'm just, that's just part of our lives up here. I mean, in Glasgow anyway, you know. Yeah. The busking, did, were you ever sort of outspoken when you were doing that as well? Oh, you mean like Speaker's Corner? <laughs> no. Yeah. No, I never did any of that. I didn't do it. I just sung songs. I mean, I didn't, I, I don't really think my opinion matters about anything except that when I see something that's not fair, I, I, I'll always stand up for what I think isn't fair. That's, it's gotta be fair, isn't it? I mean, most, yeah. of, most of us want things to be fair and, and we don't want to be cruel to anyone. So no, I, but if you're working in, and if you're, if you're a folk, folk singer working in the folk music genre, the majority of folk songs are political anyway. Very yeah. much so. And it's certainly before the Gang of Four, my, my live experience, if we're talking about that, was folk clubs. And for example, you'd go to Irvine Folk Club and all the folk clubs around Ayrshire, around the Ayrshire coast, you'd have Air and of course, Kilmarnock. And Kilmarnock was much more traditional and you had to sing a song of your cultural background. Whereas you could go to the Irvine Folk Club, which was a little bit more James Taylory. You know, you could you could do a Johnny Mitchell song <laughs> or Bob yeah. Dylan. And it wasn't it wasn't so frowned upon. Um, <clears throat> certainly, when I got to Glasgow Folk Club, which was the Star Folk Club, well, that'll give you some idea of what was happening there. It was the Communist Party Club, so it's kind of oh, wow. communism, trade unionism, socialism. Basically, we come from that conditioning because we all live in tenements where people all share the soup. We all share the experience of working for the same boss. The guy goes to work and the woman stays at home and looks after the kids. Somebody needs something, somebody else will go and give them it. It's not a, it's it's not hard to understand why Glasgow is particularly radical. It's because it's got all that background in, mm. in people's rights and make sure we're okay. And even the, the Hindu community and the Muslim community now who now live in Pollock Shaw's, well, you heard about Kenmuir Road where yes. Freddie Patel tried to take away those those poor people that have been living here amongst us. These are our people. See, if you live with us, you belong to us. That's the way <laughs> we are. And, yeah. and, and you don't get to take anybody out without our permission, you know? And I, I think that's that. what, why, you know, I probably come across, somebody said to me, I'm a political person. I'm, 
I don't think I'm political. I'm just my dad's daughter, you know. I, I, I and my mother. You want if you think I'm political, you want to hear her talk about that. My God, the <laughs> air goes blue. I like that. I like though this part of you, and 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 it reminds it reminds me. And I don't know if I've mentioned this um, before, but I'm I'm a, a massive fan of the Manic Street Preachers. And 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 James Dean Bradfield, the singer, when when Nicky, the bass player and Richie guitarist went off to university uh, and they decided to start a band, James Dean Bradfield taught himself to play guitar and taught himself his trade by being a busker in Cardiff. And he would be on Queen Street in Cardiff. He'd come from the valleys, which was a very similar situation. You know, we had the miners strike of the 80s and Thatcher. And they got their name from James Dean Bradfield's reaction. He was busking, but he wouldn't accept money because he said he was learning his trade. He was learning what to do. And people would, would, would give him money and he, he chased him down the street with it saying, I don't want it. And he was known as the manic street preacher because he wow. was, you know, it was, it was punk and it was political and, and, yeah. and telling the people about, you know, what's happening there in the valleys with the miners and their families while singing, you know, clash That's songs. Right. And, it, it, and does, like there that. Is a, there's always been a kind of uh, pressure, a fine line, if you like, between exploiting what you do and loving what you do. So you love it and you find that you want to give it generously, but it also can provide you with a living. And that, that has always been tough for socialists. You know, we, yeah. we, um, when I first worked with the Gang of Four, that was okay because the wage was similar to what I was getting on the dole because they didn't have a lot of money. Uh, but when I worked for the Eurythmics and Alison Moye, um, I was then on something that my, my dad would, in, would earn in a month, a week. I was getting that a week. And I kind of felt a little bit, there was something not okay about inviting them to my plush hotel room and, I did feel a bit there was something different about me that that this was now happening. And then when we got to number one with Fairground Attraction and all that, there's there's an elitism and a hierarchy that's involved in the music industry, which I never have approved of. Never, ever. I'll look at somebody like Ella Fitzgerald or Louis Armstrong and they are gods to me. And yeah. I, I don't see a problem with seeing somebody in the in in what they do as being so beautiful that you feel blessed even listening to it but I, I I do think that this idea that somehow you're a god just because you can string you know a little tune together I find that quite odd and I think it does remove you what is it Bruce Springsteen talks about it the darkness at the edge of town when when you make it and suddenly you're not part of your family anymore you're not part of your community you're now somebody that's that's kind of moved moved beyond and other people see you as distant from them even though you yeah. don't want to be distant from them so that 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 stuff is difficult i think and i understand it i tell you who else did what the manic street preacher guy did was robert burns um, because oh yes he would he decided that he wouldn't take money for for his contribution to the scottish songbooks in the latter part of his life so he he got money initially from publishing his book, his book of poetry. I think I read somewhere he got the equivalent of five hundred pounds when the wages of the farmer was fifteen pounds a week. So he got five hundred right right away for for this uh, for this book. 
and um, he bought his mother cloth and his sister's got hats from France and all that. And But when he got to the latter stage of his life, which by the way, was only 36 when he died, he, he decided that he couldn't, he couldn't marry the earning from the thing that he loved, the thing that felt that he felt was saving his day. And he did the tax excise man job to get money. So, um, but yeah, it's, a, it's an odd thing for musicians. We have that in us, I think some of us. I think it's in the art, in the creative arts as well. I mean, I, I know, I know um, Brecht said um, food first, art later, you know, so you <laughs> make sure that you've got the food on your plate. So don't mm. feel bad about taking money for the stuff that you're creating, you know? Yeah, I think there are ways of the ways of, of talking yourself down. Um, yeah. Certainly when I did the lottery, I don't know if anybody remembers this, but I was asked to go on the lottery by Warner Brothers, who I was signed to. And at this time, I felt a little bit um, that I was part of a machine rather than part of the creative drive that I always had and the love for it. So, which I've got back to, thank God, because I own my own work and I mm. produce my own things. And, but then I was beholden to the, the company that had just given me a big advance and they needed me to do certain amounts of publicity. And I thought some of it was a little cheesy actually. And I did think that lottery was against my principles in general, that making people gamble when they could buy a, a premium bond and they would constantly be in the in the loop for getting the big million but this way they were just making people pay money and it was supposed to go to charity but in actual fact the directors were all making millions so the directors of the lottery that day that I was asked to do the lottery and you know sing a song to promote my record and press the button uh, that very day the Guardian had printed a headline or the day before with the five people that were directors of the lottery and, and their, their, their slogan was, it could be you. So they used that slogan for the lottery. It could be you, but underneath their pictures, they said, it's definitely them. Yeah. Because they were all winning this, this big, this big windfall. And so when I went on the lottery, I thought, what would John Lennon do? What would John Lennon, I had to, I was, I was fighting with my own principles and I, I knew I had to do the publicity, otherwise a record company would drop me. But I also didn't respect the idea no, of, of the lottery. And, and so I said, it could be you. It's definitely Camelot. And then press the button. Well, all hell broke loose. The BBC were never going to have me on the telly again. Um, <laughs> no artist since has been allowed to speak before the button's pressed. That all <laughs> changed. And then... On top of that, I went, I phoned my dad because they're all like, oh, Eddie's on the lottery. You know, they're all they're all thinking this is success upon success upon success. This is all meeting Elvis to my mum and dad, you know. Yeah. It doesn't matter what it is, whether I get an MBE or, you know, or at the top of the charts or I'm in a plane. I'm successful, you know. And so I'm on the telly and I phoned my dad and he went, Hen, principals don't pay the rent. <laughs> he was so angry with me. As if. Even though he's a socialist guy and he taught me all the stuff that I know, he, I just, he, he, he thought that I was shooting myself in the foot a wee bit. Afterwards, did you find that there, there were actually repercussions, certainly with regards to your relationship with the BBC and um, that kind of thing? Not any that I paid attention to. I mean, good. 
if I paid attention, probably I'd find there was somebody somewhere that said, that's it, she's not getting another gig in the BBC. But that isn't true either. That didn't happen. No. Yeah. I'd end up getting a gig in the BBC with the younger ones that had replaced the ones that they'd sacked. So it's, you know, I, and people have forgotten it already. And it's not a, but at the time, the record company was very angry with me. And I said, look, you want me to do this thing? I'm doing it, but I can't, I had to, you're going to have to accept that I'm who I am. You know, that's what I do. Shall we, shall we just head back in time? Um, we'll just, yeah, just, um, what was your what was your musical upbringing like? Was there a lot of music when you were growing up? It was all live music, uh, yeah. and I'm not talking about gigs. I'm talking about I don't know, probably about fifty people, fifty six or sixty people, all fired into a two bedroom flat in Mary Hill, Glasgow, with brill cream, and their shoes shined so gleamingly that you could see your face in it, and you can't see people above the waist because everybody's smoking. And everybody sung, everybody was singing. And that was the bit where the kids all hated it because they shoved the records off. We'd be dancing and playing the records, party for every occasion, christening, baptisms, communions, uh, whatever was going on, New Year, Christmas, you know, birthdays, just parties for everything, anniversaries, all back at the two bedroom flat in Mary Hill and everybody was dressed to the nines just for sitting in somebody's house. And I love that about the working poor that I come from, is they knew how to make good out of everything that they had and how to make soup when they had nothing but a carrot, you know? And, and that party and that experience I had of seeing human beings emotionally connect to a song and explain their own love affair through a song or how they loved life through a song. It could have been with Ushkebe, it could have been with a whiskey or not, or a drink, but whatever happened when you were singing in the house is you got the feeling that it was very important, very respectful. You had to shut up. You had to let the singer sing. You couldn't make a noise. And if you did, you were shouted at, get out the house, get out of the living room. You know, if, if Uncle Shug has his teeth out and he's about to sing you a song that he spits all over you, you have, to, you have to respect it. And everybody got applauded as if they were Doris Day, as if Brilliant. they were Frank Sinatra. And when I heard all that, I heard the orchestras. There was not one musical instrument involved. I heard all the orchestras. I heard all the background, the, 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 the choruses where they all joined in. You could hear from one end of the street to the other. You'll never know just how much I care. And if I tried, I mean, Billy Conley talks about the parties, but he talks about sick people that can he sing. But I was, yeah. Yeah. I was surrounded by people that could sing. They were was, great was there, at it. Was there an etiquette about it as well? I mean, were there moments where somebody would sing and there would be a, a, a hush and go, he's singing Davy's song there? You know, did everyone yeah, have there their is. own There's song? People's songs. Yeah, people own songs. So yeah. my mother, before I was born, there was, she was introduced to my father's family, a bunch of roughnecks from up Mary Hill. And my mother was a little bit more refined from Anderson, although the Anderson 
council estate tenements didn't have any toilets. My dad's were more 30s build and they had a toilet, so they thought they were a little bit better, but they were rough, rough as anything. And my mum was a, just a bit more quiet and demure, and she was the youngest, and <clears throat> her mother was Irish, Southern Irish, so they had a... My mother and all her sisters are very, very bonny, very beautiful woman. Um, my mother herself looked like Elizabeth Taylor. She had that sort of black hair and beautiful teeth and gorgeous green blue eyes. And she was invited back to my father's roughneck house. And they're all boys <laughs> and they're all like Beatles fans. And, you know, and they're all kind of rough and ready, you know, and they're shipyard workers, and bus drivers and, and uh, and she started singing and she had this song <clears throat> that I'd never heard before called Friendly Persuasion, which was a Pat Boone song, I think. Right. And it's from a film about the Amish, about this boy that wants to go and fight in the war, but the Amish don't believe in fighting and the father has to pull him back. And then the boy kills a man and he has to deal with all that. And But the song is the title track and it's the I love soft as the dee 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 dee. And anyway, my mother, of course, was asked to sing because the readers love to sing and they sing and they're raucous. And my mother sat them down and she was made to sing this song, this beautiful song that she loved singing. And they all fell in love with her. Every one of them, all of them, all the men started crying. <laughs> all the, all the delight. Now, then from years after, when we were at a party, oh, Jean, oh, Jean, sing friendly persuasion. Jean, come on, Jean. And I, and I just, I, as a little girl, I was like, I was amazed at this power that a song had over big, strong, macho <laughs> shipyard workers, you know, that they would weep like that. And um, I love the power of music for that. I love the way it can transform you. And nobody, no scientist has managed to convince me that it's anything but heavenly. It's just, there's something that you get blessed just by being in the room, sitting next to somebody at a fire singing a, or saying a poem or, or a, I, I, and, and, and that to me has always been, possibly because I didn't come from a family that was all pressurizing us to, you know, go to uni and all that. We didn't have that, but we had this idea that, um, we were all very important to them and, and we all were valid regardless of what we did in life. And um, my dreams of singing to people, I started there, you know, in, in the living room with my guitar, I'd learned it when I was 10. And so, so that became my rite of passage. And that then what I did there I took with my friends to the street and busked in Glasgow. That was the biggest shock that people actually stopped and gave you money for nothing. Like you get free money. You know, sort of thing. <laughs> you're cheating hard. Like your uncle Frank does at New Year. And, and when that all happened and I, the first day I remember I've written a song about it called Glasgow star where I'm walking down the great Western road that's here in the West end of Glasgow and I'm surfing on a tarmac wave because I was right in the middle and I think I'd taken magic mushrooms that day. But anyway, I had <laughs> 50 pounds in silver pennies. So I had all these coins and so that's my cat feeder. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, so, so I've written that song, Glasgow, which is about that feeling and 
<laughs> my friend had said to me, um, what are you going to do with all this money? Because <laughs> the, the door money was 27.60 at the time and they paid your rent. So I had the freedom to sort of process what I was doing. I, had, I didn't have any pressure to go get a job. I just had this idea that I could learn my thing or continue doing what I'm doing and join a band and whatever. Sometimes I did try and get a job, but it was always an immense failure. And um, I, I, I came back with this money and, and my friend said, what are you going to do? And I said, fish suffers are on me. So I, the first thing I actually did was buy a bag of Winkles. You call them Winkles in England, but we call them Wilkes. And I was at the Barras and I bought this. <laughs> massive bag of salt and vinegar Wilkes and that was my cockles and that was my treat for winning winning this prize of this this thing that I thought I'd invented crikey you could just sing a song and people give you money I mean your uncle gave you gifts at, at you for your birthday but you you never knew that people would actually stop in the street and so I got addicted to doing it actually because of that Really, I got addicted to that that appreciation coming back to me, and and then I got cocky about it because I knew I was kind of quick and I could get harmonized very quick. I could I could do harmonies. My ear was um, I could mimic very well, and um, I, I noticed it in lots of singers since you know Amy Winehouse had that mimicking yeah. thing. She could mimic, yeah. and um, she could put on accents, and I I I, I had that with what I did. I like to. I, I like to impersonate and then um, I, I enjoyed what I can say is I enjoyed changing the atmosphere so I could change the atmosphere if I had the right situation and I felt good I could stand in a tube station or I could stand in front of 2000 people or I could be at a private dinner with any prince or king or queen and I could change the atmosphere and everybody would feel it in the same way and that's where I found the egalitarianism in music that we are all able to be one when we're listening to something and the performance aspect of it is is also listening we're also listening we're 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 giving it out but we're not really clear how it's how it's going to come out and when it does come out it comes back to us quite immediately and we I just think it's a a, a meditative and medicinal form of, of making a living. And if I didn't make a living at it, I'd still be doing it, if you know what I mean. So do you consider the busking to be your first live performances? No, my first live performances was when I was eight in knitting class, Mrs. McDonald's knitting class. And every week we'd have an after-school knitting class and we'd make little purses. And there was one boy, Gerard, he, he was in there and the rest of us were all women. And the girls were very much the popular girls. They were all in the knitting class. And I was in it basically because I kind of wanted to be part of their team. But at the same time, I knew I couldn't be part of their team. I wasn't uh, pretty enough or I was too skinny. My socks fell down all the time. I had egg on my tie. I wasn't very, I didn't brush my teeth right. <laughs> I was just, I was a bit of a mess. I thought I was a bit of a mess. And I couldn't see anything. My my eyesight had deteriorated and I didn't tell anybody for about three years. So I was just banging into lampposts and walls. And um, I, I just, uh, Miss McDonald had her favorites and she had the big bouffant hairdo. 
the big piled <laughs> high black hair and um to to you know to ease her boredom she would ask the girls to do a turn and one of them Jacqueline would get up and she would do a country dance <clears throat> another one would get up and and do a magic trick or and then Belinda who was the most beautiful of all and the princess of the classroom eyelashes that stopped her sleeping because they couldn't close she couldn't close her eyes just the most beautiful <laughs> girl had all the great gear she's only eight or nine and um I'm immediately all the boys loved her and all the girls wanted to be her and I I just wasn't in that group and I put my hand up I got my dad I realized that I could do this thing that I used to do while cleaning my mum's house or looking after my six siblings or other people's babies in the street. I used to sing them to them and lullaby them. And I sung in the tenement close, which is the best reverb ever. I've been looking for it ever since. And every studio I ever go to, I want tenement close reverb. Um, yeah. And I um and I said to Miss McDonald, I said to my dad first, when he came home from work, he was covered in black oil and I said, Daddy, would you write me out the words to love me tender? Great Elvis fans, my mum and dad. So he said, would you want them for him? And I said, I, I just want to know them. And I kept it secret. And, and he wrote out, and there's bloody six verses to that song. Love me true, love me long, love me always, whatever it is. Millions of verses. <laughs> and, I had, and I learned and learned and learned them. And then that Thursday at the knitting class, Mrs. McDonald said, who wants to sing a song? And I was like, <laughs> hand up. And, and of course, everybody was shocked. They were like, you? What? And of course, I got up and I shut my eyes and put my hands behind my head. I'll never forget the feeling. It's the same me that's inside me. So I, I had my hands at my, and my eyes were shut and my, eyes, my tears were streaming down my face. But I was determined because I knew I had this thing that I could do. It was like Kez, you know, and I started singing. Love me tender, love me long, take me to your heart, for it's there that I belong and will never part. Love me tender, love me true, all my dreams fulfilled. For my darling, I love you and I always will and then i opened my eyes and they were all like yes, <laughs> yes. All oh, yeah. oh, and i okay. just i just ended up belinda then asked me back to her house do you want to come and play with my barbie dolls would you like to come to mine for that when i was suddenly part of and it was currency then for me i just realized that i, I kind of knew it I, I don't know maybe i think singers do when they're very young they kind of know that they're just apart from everybody in a way. They're not chasing boyfriends or clothes or toys. <laughs> they just want to be the singer. Can I just ask you about that performance then? Because you, you, I would have thought if that was your first performance, that you would have had, you know, not nerves, but kind of you would. The action of putting your hands behind your head is quite a, a an open action, and you're kind of you're leaving yourself open there, and that seems like a really bold thing to do as an eight year old. Um, can you remember what the, the the decision, why you made that decision? Because um, I would have I would have been crossing my arms as protection, you know. 
I my my logic I think at the time was I lean against the blackboard and then if I could feel the blackboard with my hand I won't fall over I'll just right. I'll be steady and that was a way I think of just keeping myself steady there was definitely a, a reassurance in it like I'm only mm. relaxed I'm just leaning here nonchalantly yeah I'm gonna send this to these people that don't really believe in me and and probably don't like me and I I needed to I mean, I'm certainly uh, sure that that when a singer is born or when a musician is born, I think more than anything, because I don't think it's just singers that have it. An artist, anybody that's got a sort of drive to see beauty in something. And I saw it in songs. I saw beauty in songs when other people didn't see beauty in songs. You know what I mean? It could be yeah. anything. It could be Run Rabbit Run, Flanagan and Allen coming through a radio or something. I'd be like, <gasps> Mesmerized, but as other people are going, get a bloody dishes done, you know. the first gig that you went to then yes bob Ooh. dylan Earls court street legal tour i got a free ticket and i was six rows from the front front middle aisle and my hands were bruised with clapping i i my friends becky fraser who were kind of busking pals and the intellectuals i when i moved out of home and went to glasgow back to glasgow from Irvin, which is a family home now um out of Glasgow we moved when I was 17, 16. And um, so I moved back to Glasgow at 18. And my friends, they were all at university and all that. They knew big words and everything. <laughs> and I was like, big giant foot-long words. And I was like, what's that mean? And I, I I just felt like everybody was a god. Everybody, everybody was a star. Like the there wasn't any difference between Elvis and the people that lived in the West End of Glasgow to me because they were all <laughs> totally intellectual and amazingly bright. And I had this real idea that I'd just I'd come out of the womb. I was just come out of the womb. I had my experience being second in command to my mother and her six, seven children. But, I, you know, I, I, and also I was the oldest granddaughter. So I was kind of, I was part of this rough and ready family that, you just muck in and you what? get in there and you wash the dishes and you clean the house and you look after the kids and you change the nappies and you then you go to your bed and you get up and you go to school and then he goes to work and you iron his shirt and you sort it. That's my life. This is how you hang up a wash and that's my life. And so when I got to Glasgow and everybody was kind of having intellectual conversations about Proust and all that and fucking, I was just like, <laughs> what are they talking about? I don't know what they're about, but then I'd just sing a song. And they'd all be going like they all did in the class and Miss McDonald's Nen class. So that became, I became, oh my God, this lassie. You want, you want to hear this lassie? She's come out of the rocks of where she's comfy. Wow. And, and I think that I didn't impress myself the way other people were impressed by me. If you know what I mean, I, I wasn't impressed with me, but they, they seemed to be impressed. And so they took me busking and, and they loved uh, uh, Dylan and all that. So they got me a ticket to see Bob Dylan. And 
was that did it seem special going to see dylan was it oh did, my did god really yeah. what do you remember from that gig just the gorgeous uh, uh, fiddle player he had curly hair <laughs> it's in love with like, guys with curly hair just did me in i was like <laughs> whoa and if you had a nice accent, I ended up out with the, the Earl of Moray's son because he had blonde curly hair and, and he heard me <laughs> singing up in Findhorn Folk Club. And he was like, oh, would you like to come to Blackbush with me? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to see Bob Dylan next year. I've got Blackbush with you. And I ended up staying in Grosvenor, in his house in Grosvenor Street and wow. in this Alice in Wonderland. And I, it, for me, though, when I look back, it was Jeremy Kyle with posh accents because they were all nuts. But <laughs> the father was an alcoholic and the, the daughters were all sleeping with different men. And it was just uh, it was a bit nuts. Certainly a bit a bit less. Um, there was nobody punching anybody in the face, but there was a lot of snide <laughs> going on. You know, a lot of snide undercurrents. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. So... Do you know what we've we've totally gone over and I, and I I do want to ask you we've we've been talking about performing there and you are about to head out yeah. on tour. In fact, <laughs> you, you go in a couple of days and you go out on on the Forty Years Live tour. Yeah, and it's England I'm doing because England's postponed to the end of this year and yeah. Scotland postponed to next spring, so it's kind of back to front. I was going to do Scotland this the last year and then. England and so it's it's still 40 years because I haven't been live <laughs> I missed a year of being live so I haven't done any I, I've been doing a few Jules Holland gigs that's been great he's been really good to me um, um and I always feel like I'm getting a treat when I'm with him I was gonna say what is it like performing with Jules because I've seen him a few times he's he's the easiest person to get on with oh my god they're just, just brilliant musicians. And it's you've got an orchestra on stage with you. You've got this brass orchestra. And for me, when you have something like that, that's orchestrated and written down, basically you're just the icing on the top of that. And you you, it's like those old fantasies of the Duke Ellington Orchestra or, yeah, yeah. or uh, Harry James would, you know, Frank would walk out and start singing with Harry James and or Doris Day would walk out and start singing with... Uh, I don't know, Duke Ellington or whoever she's sung with, the orchestras, and get the pretty dress on and just do your thing and then leave. So that, so it's easy in that sense for me, but it's also um, it's also challenging because you're not doing your own thing and you're not really communicating the way you would communicate with your own audience. It, you know, when I do my own gigs, I'm, I, I'm recreating the Mary Hill party. Because for me, that's the best way of listening to music. When you feel relaxed, when they feel relaxed and you feel relaxed. For years, I hated going to gigs because I thought audiences were <clears throat> being disrespected. You'd get places that were full of, like there'd be urine on the floor and, and pints <laughs> of beer and people standing in it. Like paying 30 quid to go and see somebody and stand all night in that. I'd, I'd, I, 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 I get the excitement of going to a gig, but for me, I thought that was very disrespectful. And also, I quite like the idea that you could just sit back and relax. So at my gigs, you have seats. And <laughs> if I had my way, you'd have sofas. You'd have sofas <laughs> where you could just lie. But, but there, you've got to be careful because some of the songs are a bit soft and you might lullaby them to sleep. But I'm used to doing that with kids anyway. So, Are you nervous or anxious about this tour? 
Well, I am a little only because we have to remain in a bubble backstage. Usually when I do a gig, I'm in communication and after the show, I'll go out and I'll, I'll meet people and, and just get a real sense of whether we had the same experience. And, um, and I, I enjoy those moments. They're special to me because you can do a gig and you can feel that you, you, you were a bit under par or not match fit. Uh, I like that phrase. I'm not match fit yet you know, until the fourth gig in. But, but the first or second gig, you might think, oh, and you think you've disappointed somebody maybe. And you go out front and in the foyer, people are just like over the moon with you. And, and that sort of cheers me up, you know. Yeah. And I, miss, I will miss that because I'm not allowed to do that this time because we're shielding some of the members of the band. And yeah. so, so we have to remain in a bubble. But what's exciting about it is it feels a little bit like the old days because I'm getting in my own little car and I'm just going to tour around England. Oh, really? And yeah, me and John, we're just going to pack the stuff in the back. So I don't have any daft you know, um, airport security, you've, you're carrying a bomb bollocks to go through. I just, I just, and I can wear, have makeup in the back. I don't have to hide it in the, in the guitar case or anything and get it on the hold. Or yeah. I can take a bag on with me in my car and we can stop wherever we want to go. And I like seeing the UK like that because there's so much to the UK that I adore. And I hate the fact that, that, that people think that there's a, a separation issue just by somebody changing a treaty. That's really annoyed me because I love England. There's England I, was my home for 28 years. I, yeah. I adore the people that I, and my family there. And I love to go to Apple, um, Apple Bay and then maybe go over to Tyneside and then maybe over to Morecambe and away down to Bath and, and Cornwall and then St. Ives and Hastings and the Medway and there's just so much to the place you know there's just it's a hull god it's just a and Wales itself is another place I think we actually need to I would like to and I don't really care about the, the industry side of it what I want to do is get little art centers all in the towns and valleys and cities and wherever and I want to do every one of them and just stay for a couple of weeks in Wales itself. I, I hate this just going to Cardiff and coming out again. It, it just annoys me that, that we don't spend time in the community. That Come and stay with us in Cardiff. Yeah. Where, where do you play in Cardiff? Is it St. David's Hall? Uh, we've done, we've done St. David's Hall. We've done, we've done this other place. It's got an iron roof. Oh God, I don't remember anymore. The tram, 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 tram shed. Tram shed. Yeah, did that last time, and it's just—it's not comfortable enough for me. I just, especially now, if I'm not able to speak to the audience and I, I'm not able to meet them, and <clears throat> then I, I really think a smaller venue, because you know I'm not in the top of the charts anymore. I'm okay with having fifty people turn up. I'm all right. I don't have an ego that needs <laughs> three hundred people or three thousand. I, I I'm okay. When I did it Ireland about ten or twelve years ago. You know, fairground attraction were not in the around anymore, and people forget who you are, and the promoters don't want to invest in you. So we just decided to phone the venues ourselves, and I built it up and built it up, playing Waterford, Wexford, and Tipperary and Killarney, and I'd play all the little art centres, and eventually I was doing Vicar Street in Dublin again. You know.
Alrighty, we are going to take you through the quick fire round. Yeah. We'll see how quick it's going to be. It's not, it's not going to be quick. Who are we trying to kid? <laughs> um, so, um, who has your favourite voice? Who's your favourite vocalist live? Oh, live. Oh, man. Too many. Um, I'd have to <laughs> say my mother. I have to say my mother. <laughs> that is brilliant. That's fine. That's absolutely fine. In fact, I don't even want to comment any more on that. You can leave it there. We'll take that. Perfect. Absolutely. She nearly happy. joined a band. That's the thing. I might not exist had it not been for her shyness. She was so shy. This Irish show band, she used to go to Ireland on her holidays and they asked her to join because she sounded like Ruby Murray. And, oh, really? Uh, right. Yeah, that was her voice. And um, nevertheless, I'm in love with you. And so she she was a 50s singer and she could have been, you know, somebody that probably ended up in a under a drunken table in Los Angeles. And I wouldn't be here. So I'm kind of glad of her nerves <laughs> that she ended up giving that up. What would you say is one of your most memorable gigs where you just felt like that was as good as it gets? And that's as, this is as a performer. Well, there was one time that I hang on to, which was down somewhere at a folk festival, I think Sidmouth or something. And I remember particularly coming off stage and thinking that I had kind of transcended my, transcended my own body, <laughs> that I yeah. got to the end of the gig and thought, what actually happened to me there? But recently, these gigs that I've been doing after COVID, I think there's something happens. Mm, it's to do with trauma. Like if you have a little bit of trauma, that you can turn it into the most transcendent experience. And I saw a fight in Aberdeen a few years back and it was right in front of me. And then I had to perform and that was a really special gig. There was something <laughs> that happened just by the fact that I saw something that was dramatic like that and quite anti-human for me, or maybe really human. I don't really know. It was so intimate to see that happen that when I got on stage, I, I felt I needed to, to, to keen it out the way the Irish keen when somebody dies. I needed to, and it wasn't all the sad songs. It was just, I just needed to open my lungs and, my, and, and make those wailing noises. And they, they, make me, they, they make me forget my body. And I, so I've had a couple of those gigs. And recently, because of COVID, I, I think I've felt more musical when I've been doing, I did the Beacon Theatre in Greenock a, a couple of weekends ago, and and I did Shetland Arts Centre, uh, the, the Morel up there in Shetland, and people were all sitting there with their masks on, and mm. I just transcendent because I because I I feel that I'm I'm healing myself of something, I'm healing myself of of being in a cupboard for two years, but also just wanting to grab on to the thing that makes my life force feel valid, you know? Yeah. Do you know what? I, I'm, I'm so glad you said that because um, I'm not very eloquent and it's something as a, as a fan, as a fan of live music that I've tried to, to explain over the course of this podcast, but throughout my life, going to live music has always been a spiritual experience for me. Um, and that feeling and that energy and the recharge. And in the last, in the last few weeks, Chris and I have been very lucky to go uh, to live music again. 
And it's so hard for me to, to describe that feeling and to describe what it does to me and not just in the moment, but afterwards. Now, this is a bit of a, a curveball here, but on Friday, Chris and I, we went to Heaton Park in Manchester. We live in Manchester, um, huge park, and we saw New Order. And oh. New Order played their biggest ever Manchester date, which still blows my mind that they're in their 60s and this is their yeah. biggest ever Manchester gig. And, and as they came out and they started with a song, Regret, that I just love, I, I thought I was going to explode. And not just, not just with excitement, and it wasn't alcohol-fueled either. I wasn't drinking. And it was just my chest filled and my eyes filled with tears and my heart wanted to burst. And it was that, it was that feeling that only live music can give me. And I'm glad that that it hmm. it sort of has that for you as the performer as well Absolutely. because I, don't, I, don't... I think if if it, if it's if you're in alignment with it you're you you're doing the right thing it just uh, and you feel that you're in the right place and of course i was just while you were talking i was remembering my own live experience with paul mccartney because he played recently wow. and he played in the, the secc before covid and we all went to see it i got tickets me and john and i had no idea it was going to affect me like this but what i have which I didn't realize was the connection to McCartney <clears throat> through the Beatles through my uncles through my aunties my aunties babysitting for me and their posters on the wall and yeah. one of my very early memories was going to Saltcoats Beach with my family which is where we all went on holiday and yeah. um, a helicopter buzzing I was in my bunk my auntie's bunk bed and she was babysitting us she must have been about 16 and there was Paul McCartney and all these glossy pictures everywhere. And <clears throat> and um, the helicopter stopped above my head and a rope ladder came out and Paul McCartney climbed down in my what? dream. In my oh. dream. <laughs> I'm like six years old, I'm in bed and I'm, and I'm dreaming that this guy called Paul McCartney who's in all these pictures and my auntie drools over him is coming down the ladder and he reaches down and he goes, come on. And he scoops me up and he climbs back up the ladder with me. And, I, and I'm off the beach and I'm looking at my family all down on the beach, all waving at me. And, and that was it. I woke up. And then years later, when Fairground Attraction was successful, him and Linda were doing the crickets at um, an in-house gig in London. And he said to me, Come on, Ginge, get up and sing with us. So I got up and sung with him and the crickets. <clears throat> and that was it. That was my only real experience. And I was desperate to tell him about this dream that I had what? when I was a little girl. And I couldn't see it. And then when we got the tickets to see him at the SECC, do you know what? I sat there and I wept and wept and wept and wept because he's been the narrator of my life. He's yeah. He's just narrated our life and music the whole way through in my generation from that six-year-old right through everything that he's done we've just he's always been the guy there you know how did that feel I, i'm not even sure you can you can explain how did that feel going on stage and singing with he trans it's transcendent his music is transcendent there's, a, it, there's something there's so it's so powerful that you can it's metaphysical it, it, it's biologically 
cleaner then you it's yes. like a, a, a it's like dialysis for your body you get this this whole blood no wonder keith Beckin, <laughs> keith richards is still alive he's just playing that great <laughs> music all the time because normally if he was working on the buses he'd be bloody dead and in the grave by now you know he's just he's he the, the, you know they use music in hospitals they say that you should play them music and i did with my auntie who had a stroke at 80 i played her ella fitzgerald all day and and she only responded when she heard that music so they, they do say that that's the that connects the tissues up again or connects the the workings up again and i don't know but i i nobody has to explain that to me because i feel it you just feel my skin goes cleaner i i lose some sagging I, my hair goes softer there's a curl in it that happens when when i'm singing when i'm on tour maybe a scientist some clever guy are you telling me if i call you in two months time at the end of your tour I'm going to see a completely different Eddie. Is that what you're saying? Well, I look all right. I've been gigging, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but that is okay. Great. But I mean, uh, you just seen me the other night when I wasn't gigging, I was drinking wine. Oh. <laughs> but the, but, but the, the deal is, I think, that when you when you get that, that physical metamorphosis, it's, 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 some scientists would probably say, well, you're using your breathing apparatus it's better you're getting oxygen and quicker it's going no but it could be that it yeah. could be that too but the fact that you i'll tell you another one is i broke my back in australia years ago and i had to have an operation and i was in such pain and agony that they had to push me around in um in a in a wheelchair i'm telling you this because the miracle was that when i got to the stage i was like please let me do the gigs anyway it doesn't matter I'll just get on the stage. If I have crutches, I'll get on stage and I'll sing. And when I was singing, all pain left me. And all the crutches, I didn't need the crutches. I was shaking my arse. I was dancing. I was, and then as soon as the gig finished, I was back in the wheelchair in agony, couldn't move. And I asked the doctor there and he said, you're a Pavlovian dog because you're doing something that you enjoy so much that you can't feel the electrodes ping in your arse. Like with the dogs, what they did was ping their arse with the electrodes while they were feeding <laughs> them. And the dogs couldn't feel it while they were eating. So I'm singing and it's my dog food. So I'm a Pavlovian. <laughs> I think we all are Pavlovian dogs. Yeah, probably. I was going to say, do you want to hear my favourite, well, one of my favourite um, gig memories of playing, of playing live? So I was in a Celtic big band and in about 2005, we had a gig at Celtic Connections at the Piping Centre in the afternoon. Then at, where's, at, where's that? Piping Centre is it's near Cow Cardens in, in, in Glasgow. All right. Okay. I love and, that for the listener, just so you know, Eddie was actually pointing to where it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just over there. It's just behind my door. It's behind my door. <laughs> so we so we played this gig, but then at the at the night, um, it was around about half past ten, eleven o'clock. We had um we we had been asked to play at the the festival club, and the festival club, you just buy a ticket for the club as a punter. You don't know who's going to play, and um and you know it, it might be somebody who's just come off stage at the Royal Concert Hall. It could be a band like us who played at the Piping Centre at half past two. So we went on and we played two tunes, about 12 or 13 of us. And we, we played us after we played our second one, we had to do an encore because we went down quite well and we didn't have an encore with us. So we just had to play the second tune again, um, which is 
from halfway through, we thought, let's not take the piss. Um, so, so we got to the end of that, and, and it was fantastic. And then after us was Eddie Reader. Was I? Yeah, you were after us. Oh, I think I remember that night. Do you? Ish. Yeah. I'm probably a bit steaming. It's usually about three in the morning. Yeah, it was. I mean, the festival club is carnage generally, isn't it? Yeah, it's um, great fun. Oh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. But um, Me too. Yeah. That was the best time for us. Celtic Connections, we used to park, put the kids in bed. They were in secondary school by this time. And me and John would get in the car and go drive, park outside the hotel where it was the central hotel at those days. Yeah, yeah. And we'd just spend the whole night up, come back at eight in the morning, go to bed, put set the alarm, get them up for school, go back to our beds till four o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> that is rock and roll. So fun. So fun. Christopher Payne, I cannot believe that you did not tell me that. I had no clue where that story was going. No, no. See, I know. You've already met Eddie before. Oh, yeah, he's yeah. a Celtic Connections guy. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a Celtic Connections, which is a cultural revolution up here. Um, oh. It happens in January, which is a very cold month. And um, it's kind of cheers you up after New Year and Christmas is all over. So you get at the end of January, beginning of February, and everybody shows up. And it used to be like 5,000 people would show up, but now it's like 14 million. And yeah. you've got people from the Basque region of Spain in it and um, wow. Catalonia, and, and you've got players from Cape Breton and Canada and America, and then you've got the Irish who show up. And, um, and, uh, and now the English are kind of pushing in because they've started to respect it on Radio 2. It's been a few years now, maybe a couple of decades, but, yeah. but there was a time when nobody knew it was happening. And then... Mm. Uh, no one outside of the area and now it's just this world-renowned event and it's so special actually if you get the chance just book the uh holiday in across from the concert hall make sure you've got a you've got a room there because that's where all the late night sessions happen now and everybody after the gig just goes back to there and we all just jam all night so i'll be sitting there with martha wainwright and billy bragg and you know, Sugar Nifty and, and Maddie Pryor might turn the Oyster Band might come, and then some dudes from Australia and New Zealand, and then some Spanish amazing person, and uh, yeah, yeah. It's just, and Jerry Donahue and Jerry Douglas and Danny Thompson, and we're all just playing together. It's right, amazing. I need to, I need to put that in my diary. Yeah, no, you need to. Great fun. This is still the quick fire round. <laughs> Here's, here's a random one for you. Do you have a cover version that is your favourite to play live? And also, which song would you love to cover that you haven't yet done so? Uh, I, 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 like, um, I like singing La Vie en Rose. Oh. Um, I like it because it was my, it was a kind of busking song. And also I learned how to speak French when I was busking out there. And love it. I love doing that. And I love bringing it back from my it's part of me and um, and what about one that you've not covered but cover i've not actually I don't, think I've, I don't think i've recorded it yet so it might be one to think about <clears throat> i might have it on a, as a live record somewhere also as time goes by i like doing that with them um, in a guitar tuning maybe a john martin guitar tuning I, I really enjoy that um but there's lots that i have I, I i love elvis there's some great elvis ones i'd like to have a go 
Which one? You're only allowed to pick. You're only allowed to pick one Elvis song. Come on, let's pin you down. You're only allowed one Elvis treat song. Treat me like a fool. <laughs> treat me mean and cruel, but love me. Boom, 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 boom. End like that. I love. Her. I love that song. Fantastic. Apparently, yeah. that's what Led Zeppelin. Um, I just heard that the other day. Led Zeppelin had, had El- they'd gone to meet Elvis. I think it might be in a documentary and. And they and he said, well, "What's your favorite song, man?" And and uh, I think Robert Plant said, "Oh, love me, treat me like a fool, treat me mean and cruel, but love me." And then when they were saying goodbye, Elvis peeked in the hotel room and went, "Treat me like a fool." Cheerio. <laughs> Next question in the quickfire round, and it's one that I I really like is um, where you have um, absolutely weird mashups when you go on tour or you play a festival. Who's the kind of the weirdest matchup? Either you coming before a band that is completely unrelated to the kind of stuff you do, or you've been put together with a, a support act that it just doesn't make sense, or that maybe it's worked, but you wouldn't have thought it would work beforehand. Maybe. I mean, I did this thing with a band called Elephant Talk a while back. And we did a wee tour and it was great. We did Sidmouth and they were all didgeridoos and samples. And right. I was just kind of keening all over it, which I quite like. I mean, I'm I'm a fan of all genres and I especially like things like the Cocteau Twins and that. And oh, I, yeah. I love the way she sings. I love the way she uses her voice as an instrument. It mm. doesn't have to have any lyrical you know, recognition. It just has to be a musical thing. And I, I love that. So I I... I I think probably that was my most adventurous and one giant leap I did. I did some singing with them. That was great. That was just all the um, African bands, uh, African vocal bands, and and then layered on to Asian folk music, layered on to Aborigine, layered on to some sort of rapper from New York, layered on to me singing some ethereal thing on top. And I, I enjoyed that. That was, I thought that was a great mashup. One giant leap, it's called. And it was all for free. We everybody just played for nothing. I love that. We're almost at the end. We've taken a lot of your time. And oh, we've got a couple right. of questions. We've got a couple Beautiful of questions. Sunny day here in Glasgow. God oh, something. We're in Manchester, so it's really not here. Okay, <laughs> it'll be fine tomorrow. And when I come on Wednesday, I'll bring the Glasgow weather with me. Please do. Please do. <laughs> well, you're playing the Met, aren't you? I don't know. I'm playing Manchester. I know that my wee ne- niece is coming, and I can't go back. I can't have her backstage, but um. So yeah. Oh no. Oh wait. Let's not. Let's not dwell on that. Let's not dwell on that. The way it is for a while. The, the if only question. Who do you really wish you could have seen live perform live, and oh. and now it's impossible because they're not with us. And then also flip that. Who who would you still really like to see live that you potentially could, you know? Oh, I saw Ella Fitzgerald live and Nelson Riddle when I was busking in London. And that was my big dream come true. Um, that was at the Grosvenor Park. It's actually, there's some, uh, you can go online and find out when it was, but I spent 200 pounds on a charity ticket for this event. Wow, and and that that was that was what I spent my money on. But if if Louis Armstrong was still alive, I would go yes. wherever he is, and I would watch him do his thing. And I I'd want to see that. Um, if that would be if that could possibly happen. And I, and I'm I'm I missed seeing 
um, people like Doris Day and Frank Sinatra because I have a big 50s love of 50s stuff and uh, 40s stuff. Um, I'd love to have seen the Boswell sisters because I think the Boswell sisters are amazing as female vocalists, mm. harmonists. Um, I was going to say their harmony is just incredible. Yeah, the comedian harmonists are spectacular. If you've ever heard the story of the comedian harmonists who were... Um, uh, three guys were Jewish Germans and three were not Jewish Germans and they were banned by Adolf Hitler and they were they were as popular as the Beatles in between the wars um, no. it, something like that but today I nearly saw Charles Aznavour and I bought tickets and then he died um, oh. uh, I would I would still I mean I, I, I actually I'm very lucky in that I, I've sung with a lot of my heroes um Kiki D, I sung with her, um, and she, I got her to sing Amorous to me at the breakfast table. <laughs> Just like sing it, sing it. <laughs> and um, uh, you know, I there's people that I I adore that that I just um, you know I I'd I think I'd go to the ends of the earth if, if definitely if Louis Armstrong came back to life. I love that. Um, do you listen and there to are still people I would, who do I listen to? Do you well, listen to no, do you listen to much modern modern music? Yes, I do. There's somebody my little niece has introduced me to called Olivia Rodriguez, is it? Yes, uh, Olivia Rodriguez. Absolutely. And I I love uh, there's a song that she sung on something I heard. And I said, you know, when I had my broken hearted 30s. That would have been the song that I clung to if if I if, <laughs> if I was back then in that in that period of my life. But um, now that I'm in my settled sixties, I'm kind of I don't I, broken heart songs don't I don't I don't I don't recognize me in them anymore. You know yeah. I, I I understand the broken heart and I understand unrequited love like with a font kiss. Oh my God. I often fantasize that I'd love to meet Robert Burns and bring him back to life and, and just walk <laughs> him around and say, come here to show you what they've done about you. Come here to show you where they've put your picture. Come here to, you, you want to see your statue in Vancouver? <laughs> well, that that album featured quite a lot in our, our wedding, um, oh. wedding reception. So I made a, a massive playlist and there was loads from well, the original album, but also the deluxe edition, because my favourite ones were, I loved um, um, Coming Through the Rye. Oh, my Red Green, yeah. Oh, my God. And um, and Banks and Braze. Uh, mm. I loved that. I loved I loved it when the, 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 the band just kind of cuts loose, you know, and just, oh, yeah. you, you need to hear this, Alex. I'll, I'll, I'll pop it on, because we're going to do a playlist. Um, to We do a playlist for every episode. Coming through the rye is spectacular because my red green and Anna Massey both had this tune. Well, Myra had this tune called "Dram Behind the Curtain," which is about her granddad that used to hide the best whiskey behind the curtain at parties, which is similar to my granddad. So he'd hide all the good stuff, the Glenfiddich and all that, and then everybody else would get the bells and the Hague and, yeah, and the yeah. rubbish <laughs> and the the gut rot, the gut rot. And so it was called "Drum Behind the Curtain," and I said that tune, that's a mashup. That would be brilliant <laughs> in between coming through the right, good buddy, coming through the right, and then they play that right in the middle of it, and you can see them dancing in their wet petticoats. It's all about having sex in the long grass, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. 
Well, we've come to the end, I believe, Chris. We have, we have, we've got one more question and well, it's more a recommendation basically. So um, we ask all our guests to recommend either a live album or a live track, or maybe it's just some footage of somebody performing live that we can find on, on YouTube or, or wherever. So just wondering if there's something that you can recommend for us. There's a few, but the first thing I always go to is um, Sarah Vaughan singing Perdido. You can get that live. She does it live and yeah. it's out of this world. Yeah. And she's got this drummer who's all dressed up in a sort of flamingo outfit, uh, Spanish, some idea somebody had. Oh, and he's so miserable. He's like, why am I doing this? Being an idiot <laughs> on telly. And she then is just dazzling with her beautiful vocal dexterity. It's just amazing. Oh, yeah. That's a cracker. That's and a cracker. Louis Armstrong doing Dinah. Dinah, is there anyone finer in the state of Carolina? If there is, let me know. And then he does the Elizabeth Fraser thing where he goes, I'm an and he just makes it all. Brilliant. You know, Alex, I was going to say this, we, we have scratched the surface here. Um, Eddie, once once the dust is settled and you've come back from um, touring, we'd love for you to join us again because we w there's so much that we haven't even looked at. Um, so if you if you okay. come on again, that would be lovely. No worries. I could. I I love I love how you talk about the experience and music and singing. It's just it's fantastic and it's genuinely uplifting it, it oh, uh, it's just it's wonderful and i can't thank you enough for your time thank you it's my conditioning you know i learned that miserable people get better when they sing a song <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> i learned it at my mother's knee so it works and even if you're miserable the singing of the song gets you out of the misery or accompanies your misery in a better way than just smashing your cup down on somebody's face <laughs> <laughs> And we hope you just really enjoy the next couple of weeks as well, your tour. I hope so. Three weeks, yeah. I hope it's all right, yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Eddie Thank Reader. You. Thank you. God bless. Ah, there we go. What a wonderful interview. See, she is, oh, she's just brilliant. I always, I always come out of these interviews feeling just, you know, re real joy. But I was just smiling. Just a, a beautiful woman, a beautiful person. Um, and, and I love that she basically pissed off Morrissey, told him to go sling his hook. She she's not she's not playing his mind games. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And Eddie sang for us. That was lovely. I mean a few times. And and it's it's really nice as we speak to people and listener, we I think we're very honest with you. A lot of these interviews we we do a way in advance of of when we release them. Um but it's it's really exciting as we speak to 
musicians anyway um to to hear hearing their voice their excitement about going on tour playing live again and getting back out to their audiences and that's the same with eddie and she said you know she doesn't care if she's playing to 10 20 50 people or 200 500 she just loves that um that face-to-face and that performance and and being out with an audience again and that was yeah. just it's just lovely wasn't it? and if you've if you've never heard eddie live um i suggest you go she's on tour right at the moment and we've already posted um the poster which has got all the dates on i i was trying to i was racking my brains trying to think of all the times that i've seen eddie live and in glasgow i think i only saw her once at this small it's like a converted church called cottiers in the west end but then in manchester i've seen her at sail waterside I've seen her at the Lowry, Bridgewater Hall, the Met in Bury. Um, where else? I've seen her loads. Um, and are you are you her stalker? No. What it what it's it's called being a fan of music, Alex. It's you if you like someone and the way that they perform. Occasionally, you may want to go and see them again. Sometimes you should just be brave about this, Chris. <laughs> I've just seen Sam Fender for the third time in just over five weeks. I was going to mention that. Yeah, I'm, I mean, his, uh, I'm his professional stalker. Yeah, just... don't don't be shy. Don't be shy or embarrassed. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm stalking him outright. Okay. No, that's great. I didn't know that you'd seen her that many times either. And yeah. uh, do you know what? I've I've never seen her, and and now I want to. Yeah. Um, and I need to go. And I, I, I do love those occasions where you have a smaller audience. Um, and so yeah. I really should uh, jump on that opportunity. And she's hilarious as well. When she, when she, the chat in between her songs, um, it, it is like just being in uh, the living room of a, a tenement flat with her. It's, it, it, I know she talked about that in the episode. But that's what one of her gigs feels like. It feels that warm and welcoming and like you're part of a family. I, I really like that. And I just feel that's, a, I also think that's quite a Scottish thing. And that, yeah. was, um, that, was, uh, that was really nice to hear. Well, we hope you enjoyed that too. Please let us know. And as always, just get in touch. There's no point me even telling you what to get in touch with because we just, we, we just love you contacting and uh Give us your recommendations for guests, people that you'd love to hear. Send us your photos, pictures of your merchandise and your ticket stubs. And um, you can find us across Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Gig Stories Pod. And you can email us as well, can't they, Chris? Yeah, you can email us at info at gigstoriespodcast.com. Oh, I nearly got that wrong. Oh, you got it. me getting all cocky. Do you know why, why that happens? Go on. It's because you were talking and I switched off. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, listener, we'll see you next time. See you next time. Click. That was Chris Swimchinoff. Bye.